Yo, what's up? Welcome to the legendary Eddie Murphy episode of A Bed With Stev. Since we started this epic project, which is a bit like Chinese democracy, uh, by Guns N' Roses, or it's a bit like making the Godfather trilogy, a lot's happened. I've changed the name of the podcast. It's now A Bed With Stev. It started off as The Stev Mayo Show, and we're talking all about Eddie Regan Murphy. Born April 3rd, 1961, the actor, comedian, the legend. We're going to find out about all his films. We're going to go through all of them. We're going to talk to some friends about his top fives. And we're going to start with this number, which is Party All The Time. His big hit with Rick James. Please enjoy. and Stevie Wonder with my Sherry Amore on Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live nowadays is a bit, you know, it's very political, but the stuff Eddie did was like very much a prelude to his movie work where he was playing like a kind of mischievous um, burglar who was actually talking to kids, not in a kind of pedo way, but in a kind of, you know, he was a kid's sort of entertainer who was actually talking about stealing things from people's identity, uh, making a, getting a woman pregnant and all that sort of thing. So very early on, he had this role as a kind of risque guy. That clip is obviously part of the culture of the 80s, the sort of very early 80s, where Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Eddie himself, Mr. T, Prince, all these people were part of like the mainstream culture and he was basically doing impressions of them. And, you know, it carries over into his films. Obviously, it's amazing. Very early on, Murphy is influenced by Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor, and he's doing impressions of him in his stand-up. So with his stand-up, you know, I'm going through the whole thing here. It'll probably only take, like, ten minutes, this podcast. But with the stand-up, everyone's obviously got their favourites. There's Delirious and Raw. You don't even have to be able to talk to sing and get famous. Because James Brown been singing 20 years. I don't know what the fuck James is talking about. 
I don't understand shit James said. I met him once at Saturday Night Live. I walked up and said, James, I love your stuff. James said, Sit back and do that. And whatever James is saying is some real heavy shit to James. Because it's real meaningful shit to James. Because at the end of every sentence, he ended off with, ha! <laughs> he meant that shit that he just said, boy. Everything. He said, ha! <laughs> you get mad, you start putting the needle back saying, what the fuck did I just miss? Seven up, and the people say, ha! <laughs> yeah, and Delirious is something he probably wouldn't get away with now. Um, very risque, lots of sort of derogatory references to homosexuals and like kind of slurring nationality stuff. But Delirious is quite legendary and I only actually saw it about 10 years ago. Raw is the one for me because that was more readily available. And I think Delirious was actually banned until, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago. In the pre-internet age, you're actually able to get away with that, something being banned. And I think it was banned because of its kind of risque content. Raw came out when he was already a big movie star. So we're gonna go straight from um, the Saturday Night Live stuff to 48 hours. See how you needed me a little more than you thought, huh, Mr. Kate? I decided you as good a chance as I got. That shows you how desperate I am. This prison give out $400 suits? $957 and I wore this shit in. You're after a killer, not a bunch of hookers. Yeah, well, I got a reputation for looking real nice with the ladies, man. Maybe when we get out, I could take you to a couple of spots. We can get you dressed up and we can go on a little pussy hunt, huh? Hey, I don't want to hear your jive. I already got that department taken care of. You got a lady, Kate? Yeah. You know, the generosity of women never ceases to amaze me, you know that? Hey, don't even try this shit, man. I don't work like this, no deal. Listen, we ain't got no deal. I own your ass. Ain't no goddamn way to start a partnership. Now get this. We ain't partners. We ain't brothers and we ain't friends. I'm putting you down and keeping you down until Gans is locked up or dead. And if Gans gets away, you're gonna be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. Right, so this is a bit where I tell you that 48 Hours is probably my favorite film of all time. It's made by Walter Hill, who also did um, Warriors, which is a couple of years before this, and also had a similar cast. David Patrick Kelly is in 48 Hours as Luther, and he was the, one of the main guys in the Warriors. And so 48 Hours, I believe, was originally um, intended for Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor. So that fell through for some reason, maybe to do with the money of it. So Nick Nolte is amazing in this as well, as the kind of gruff cop who discovers, um, who discovers Reggie Hammond. I think in production, they thought that it wasn't funny enough. So Eddie is going, not as much as he does later in Beverly Hills Cop, but he's kind of going um, spontaneous, improvising. And there's a long shot in the middle of the film, which really shows off San Francisco really well. Nick Nolte and Murphy are walking down one of the big hilly streets towards Chinatown in San Francisco. And when I went to San Francisco, Chinatown is actually like as big as a kind of borough. So they're walking through Chinatown and they end up having a fight at the end. It's a big scene, you know, and it's one shot. So it tells me that they're kind of rolling with the punches there literally. And like the dialogue is just flowing and it's not word to word kind of dialogue, which I don't really like. And there's a, there's a movement at the moment in film called Mumblecore. I can't remember the actual director, but he's made a TV series called Easy. And also he made the film called Drinking Buddies, which is a really good film 
for me because it feels really real because they're not just reading you know lines to each other like in some sort of play or something they're really improvising and it's really spontaneous and so there's scenes in this and throughout the 80s movie career of Murphy where he's walked in on scripts which feel like they're not that funny and he's making them funny so 48 Hours is the first example of this and then obviously the groundbreaking sort of scene of Eddie Murphy's career where he got noticed is in the bar full of rednecks where if you look at it back it's not that funny he's just being really really aggressive but also quite bodacious and courageous and again doesn't feel like he's reeling off lines particularly and it's kind of a show stealing scene all right listen up man one of them's underage another one attacked the police officer and i still ain't found what i'm looking for yet well, look, I think you're on your way to being out of business, all right? Let's see what we can fuck with next. Hey, man, all right, okay, okay, okay. Now, listen, now, the Indian hangs out with a chick who lives up the block. Just head up the alley across the street where Chinatown starts. She lives on top of the jewelry store. I didn't ask you shit about this girl, man. Well, give me a break, will you? You're going to have to settle for her place because it's all I know. I'm telling you, I'm giving you all I know. Well, look, Hoss, you start running a respectable business... And I won't have to come in here and hassle you every night. You know what I mean? And I want the rest of you cowboys to know something. There's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Reggie Hammond. Y'all be cool. Ta-da. That's Reggie Hammond. And Murphy at this point didn't actually know how to act, so he was just giving it the facial expressions according to what he'd seen in martial arts movies, which is kind of over-expressive, but I think it works very well for Murphy here, and he's kind of, he becomes much more of a cartoon character as he goes on in the 80s, but, you know, at this initial thing, what we see from him is a mixture of his Saturday Night Live stuff and the Bruce Lee films. The word fuck is issued 48 times in this film. It's quite a sweary film. Walter Hill was apparently sleeping with any one of Eddie Murphy's agent's girlfriends or something. So that uh, tells you that love conquers all and opens many doors. The sky blue Cadillac that uh, Nick Nolte drives is featured in many Walter Hill films. This one, but also Red Heat and Brewster's Millions. And it's kind of a running joke. I do like that in films where the sort of director and producers and writers create their own kind of world. I mean, we've got that on many fronts here because James Remar is almost, he's involved in The Warriors as well. He's involved in Wild Bill and The Long Riders, which are also Water Hill films. So, 48 Hours, if you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend checking it out. This is where Murphy really gets his um, shit off the ground, man. Like a pussy make you brave, man! Alright, this is Strictly Good Times, so we're going to go straight to Trading Places. So, Trading Places is big, man. It's a big Christmas film. You've probably seen it. You know, without reading up too much on it, I've probably seen the film about 50 times. There's many components involved in this. John Landis is his first um, film with Murphy and he ended up doing a few. It's probably the best John Landis film, I'd say. It's um, just after he'd done the Thriller video, which is obviously the biggest video of all time. I'd say this is John Landis's strongest film. The big scene for me in this film, I think, is in the prison, which again is improvised. So if it tells me anything about Murphy is that he needs to improvise. He had to keep you doing the tight surveillance, man. That's why I'm wearing these bummy clothes. He had to make sure a dude had his payroll before I made my move. Tell us how you cut 
Yeah, I ain't cut him with no knife, man. But you told me last night you cut the dude. With these, I cut him. I am a chain belt in Kung Fu. Bruce Lee was my teacher. Watch this. What? Technique. You do that, a quart of blood will drop out of a person's body. Tell how you beat on the cop. Wasn't no cop, man. It was cops. Plural. Nine, ten cops. Beat the shit out of ten cops and had to change my whole strategy around. Yo, when they brought you in here and booked you, you was crying like a pussy. Yeah. That's because it's one of the cops fell. He threw tear gas in my face. And that's the kind of shit they use on crowds, man. I still walk in here like a man, so get out of my face, all right? I mean, you, you beating up on a man, you putting a man in a hospital, how come I don't see no marks on you? Yeah. Because I'm a karate man, all right? Karate man bruise on the inside. They don't show their weaknesses. But you don't know that because you're a big Barry White-looking motherfucker. Right, a great film, obviously many, many highlights to this and probably I would say Dan Aykroyd's best performance as well. Um, so this was the start of a little cinematic trail that went through to come into America where um, Randolph and Mortimer Duke appear in Coming to America as well as homeless guys. So again, that's another thing I love, like themes. doesn't matter what I love, but it's a cool kind of Easter egg thing that, you know, is present in a lot of modern kind of franchises. But at this point, they didn't know they were making sequels. And when they did, or when they did do tie-ins, it was kind of all one piece of work you know so fair play to John Landis that he had this kind of idea to have the themes running through all his films the one thing I'll say about Trading Places is um, the end is confusing and I think the third act especially for kids or anyone under the age of maybe 18 they're not going to understand what's going on in the financial market so that was one of the drawbacks when I first saw it and I barely even understand it now but you know that Billy Ray Valentine and Winthorpe at the end they get one over on the Dukes and strip them of all their money, make them bankrupt. But the way they explain it with the like sort of high octane Wall Street stuff is a bit hard to understand for, in a family film. But you know, is it a family film? Ja Jamie Lee Curtis has her boobs out, um, and there's a lot of kind of adult themes. The party scene in particular is amazing. Do you want to funk? And it's kind of very adult. So you know, along those lines, I suppose it is an adult film. But the first time I watched it, I was probably under 12. So. We've had some complaints about con men pretending to be blind and uh, cripple. Oh, I'd love to help you, man, but I ain't seen nothing since I stepped on that landmine in Viet Cong back in 72. It was rough, very painful. You were in Nam? So were we. Where? Um, I was in um, Sang Bang, Dangang. Uh, uh, I was all over that place, basically. A lot of places. A lot of places. What unit were you in? Uh, I was with the Green Beret, uh, Special Unit Battalion's uh, Commando Airborne Tactics, Specialist Tactics uh, Unit Battalion. Yeah, it was real hush-hush. I was Agent Orange, that was my name, Agent Orange, Special Agent Orange, that was me. Airborne, huh? I can see! I can see! I have, I can, I have legs! I have legs! Oh, shit, look at this! Man! I can walk, Jesus! 
the first couple of acts are just brilliant, especially the first act. And there's kind of themes that run through this still today, especially in America, of kind of, um, you know, Eddie sort of poses as a dismembered Vietnam vet, which was going on at the time, begging for money. And then we've got these kind of Harvard twats that are on the same block in Philadelphia, kind of, that have never done a day's work in their lives. And it was such an interesting, like, comment on society at the time and now. A criticism of his role, which is probably more to do with the writing is that it very quickly turns into this guy who is like you putting out the coals on my floor and all that sort of stuff he suddenly cares about the flat in the duration of his party so he goes into this party scene and he comes out of this party and he's a completely different character and I think, you know, this is obviously one of Murphy's top five roles as well, you know, and he was thoroughly he got his boots on now and probably getting paid a lot more for the roles. Another little tidbit for you. Almost 30 years after the release, the plot for the movie is inspiration for new regulations on the financial markets. The Eddie Murphy rule, as it came to be known, is to do with dealing with insider trading. Hello, security. Merry Christmas. Now next, I've got to talk about Best Defense. So Best Defense is the next film that Murphy did. And I've seen it in the last year. And I often say about Neil Young that his album, uh, Are You Passionate? is probably the worst album of all time for me. And he's also did Landing on Water, which is pretty poor. I regard it as one of the worst albums of all time because it's done by Neil Young, who I think is in the top five singer-songwriters of all time. And then with this, this has two of my favorite guys in it. Probably two of my favorite, well, they're probably my two favorite comedy actors, certainly of the 80s, probably of all time. And that's Eddie Murphy and Dudley Moore. So I watched this film, and even though it's got my two favorite performers of the 80s, I, I just couldn't stick with it. It's a pile of bullshit. I think it was a dud. It was a turkey. And it's like a result of production problems where, you know, they're trying to rescue the film by putting Murphy on it. Because at this time, he's hot mustard. He's, like, in his stride. He's still only, like, 22. And so I think with Best Defence, they latched on these scenes with Murphy in this kind of comedy military role. And him and Dudley Moore never meet on screen. And it's just a disjointed film that they tried to save in like the worst possible way obviously Murphy must have got a serious paycheck for it and that's the first sign of one of his detriments as an actor or as a performer that you know he kind of did this role for the money so that was his next film in early 84 Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop On vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take it anymore. For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I have to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. <laughs> I've never been to a cell that had a phone in it. Can I stay for a while? Because I ordered some pizza. We have six witnesses that say you broke in and started tearing up the place, then jumped out the window. All right, Beverly Hills Cop, probably the biggest film of his career. A big hit, 
watched it the other day fresh as a daisy still you know what is it now 33 years later so this film's interesting because it was originally intended as a straight action film and was written as a kind of vehicle for Stallone and Stallone later kind of did this film in Cobra which I've always thought was nothing really um, in Stallone's 80s where he's doing Rocky and Rambo and all the sequels and over the top and stuff so Stallone was originally considered for this part of Foley his name was Axel Foley so that's maybe you know Murphy was called Billy Ray Valentine and Reggie Hammond and now he's Axel Foley which is a bit of a weirder name but I suppose Stallone was going to have that name I mean it's a weird name anyway so Stallone did some rewrites of this you know Beverly Hills Cop draft or whatever it was and made it an even straighter action film which was like apparently had opening scene it was like Saving Private Ryan and was serious like I don't know if it would have ended up like Commando or something like that with Schwarzenegger where it's almost cartoon kind of violence and all that sort of thing so it's a it's a straight action film and it ended up with Murphy in the role through various I, I don't know how these Hollywood things work but the script went knocking about and it ended up with Eddie Murphy and what I'm always taken by is this was an example like the biggest example more so than trading places of his spontaneous comedy and so you can look at the youtube clips of this film where he's kind of blagging his way into the hotel where he's like blagging in with inspector todd his boss and like they're all kind of like saturday night live three minute sketches in which he's you know there's an idea of the scene but the way he goes with it is pure gold at this point thank you Hi. Nervous, some people, huh? <laughs> May I help you? Yes, you have a reservation for an Axel Foley. Well, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't see anything under that name. Uh, check Rolling Stone magazine's Axel Foley. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, no Rolling Stone, no Axel Foley. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, it's all right. You guys probably just made some kind of mistake with reservations. Why don't you just give me another room now, go up and go to sleep? I'm sorry, sir, but there are no rooms available. Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But I'm not some hot shot from out of town. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson that's going to be picked up by every major magazine in the country. I was going to call the article, Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world, but now I think I might as well just call it Michael Jackson can sit on top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palmer because there's no niggers allowed in there. Excuse me, sir. It seems that we do have a, a last-minute cancellation. Uh, there is a room available. It's a suite, but uh, I'll only charge you the single room rate. Thank you. I'm sorry I got upset. It's probably from jet lag or something. I'm very tired. I understand, What's sir. the rate, anyway? Uh, that'll be $235 a night, sir. And he's perfect for this role. Again, he's kind of a streetwise thug, but this time he's a cop. And he's like a fish out of water in Beverly Hills where everybody does things by the book. 
constantly taking these cops that are trailing him on a wild goose chase and it's another example of the buddy cop movie that was later done with lethal weapon and bad boys and all these things it's one of the templates but you know it'll always be a vehicle of its own because of murphy because of what he does here and the kind of prank side of it which i don't know if was in the script the banana in the tailpipe all that sort of thing who knows but beverly hills cop is timeless you know it was originally for stallone a lot of people were considered for the role people like Al Pacino and James Kane or James Kahn or whatever you say his name and Mickey Rourke as well and so this is a legendary film because again I feel like it's the um, the result of some spontaneous kind of events that led up to the way it was made but also the spontaneous scenes in it here's another one Morning, officers. What y'all, the second team? We're the first team. Yeah. We're not gonna fall for a banana in the tailpipe. You're not gonna fall for the banana in the tailpipe? <laughs> it should be more natural, brother. It should flow out like this. Look, man, I ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe. See, that's more natural for us. You've been hanging out with this dude too long. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just fucking with you. That's funny to me, sorry. So some credit also has to go to John Ashton and Judge Reinhold. Judge Reinhold, one of the most legendary actors of the 80s, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Vice Versa. There's so many films he did as well that were amazing. And his kind of lovable role, like kind of dumb cop, was brilliant as well. They improvised with Murphy, they stuck with it. There's one scene where they come back from the strip club and Murphy goes into his thing about how they're super cops and how it's not his, he led them astray and they were the guys that took down the kind of bad guys in the strip club. And if you see John Ashton as Taggart, he puts his head down and he's kind of clasping his nose and he's kind of laughing, basically. And I think there's a few points in where you can see that Murphy's going off and kind of improvising where you can see that they're trying not to corpse the, uh, the characters around him. And they all do really well, but apparently there was hundreds of takes that were ruined by the actors just pissing themselves and the director Gil Hill who plays Inspector Todd I think again this is one of the most legendary kind of performances in history in this and in the two sequels particularly the second one I think he's even better in the second one he's a real Detroit police officer as far as I know and I think he ran for mayor as well Gil Hill what a legend so he's not even an actor and so he I think is one of best like Murphy's best comedy partners and kind of actors that goes with him along with Dan Aykroyd and along with Nick Nolte and uh, so Gil Hill has got to take a special um, mention here because he's not even an actor and you know Murphy is still in you know young in his acting career here I think he's still only 23 is that fucking Foley in here? alright there's time it's showtime okay Hey, boss, I know what you're going to say, but... You I'm... mind telling me where the fuck you come off going undercover without authorization from me? What the fuck is this all about? You want to play some fucking bullshit cowboy cop? Go do it in somebody else's precinct. Don't you want to hear my side of the story? What's your fucking side of the story? Let's hear your side of the story. Hey, Axel. I'm not taking any more of this shit from you. How much this little stunt of yours going to cost this city? I don't think cost is the issue here, sir. I think the issue should be my blatant disregard for proper procedure. You damn right, wise ass! The mayor called the chief, the chief called the deputy chief, the deputy chief just chewed my ass out. You see, I don't have any bit of it left, don't you? When the fuck did you get a truckload of cigarettes from anyway? From the Dearborn hijack. From the Dearborn hijack? And that fucking bus went down last week. 
That truck is supposed to be in the damn pound. I'm trying to tell you. Jeffrey, this is none of your fucking business. This is not my locker. Listen, Axel. No more of these setups, you understand? You're a good cop. And you got great potential, but you don't know every fucking thing. And I'm tired of taking the heat for your ass. One more time, you're out on the street. Yeah, so the character of Michael Tandino that gets killed at the beginning and he's kind of avenging his death, he's obviously an Italian guy. And so that was kept in and Jenny Summers. The Stallone element is kind of still there. You can imagine that Jenny is the kind of love interest of Stallone and Michael Tandino is his brother because he's Italian. So the massive rewrites with Murphy in are kind of, you know, they're still kind of residue from that version. So the film, I think, was a bit of a calamity, you know, in its shooting, though there were, the shooting scripts was like patched together of hundreds of different action movie scripts. When it ended up going action, Murphy is just kind of rolling with it and treating it as a Saturday Night Live sketch. So that's what kind of makes this film truly, because I think the script was bullshit. I believe as well the end, I don't know this, I haven't read this, but I believe that the house at the end is the same um, house from Commando that um, Arnie is blowing up in the the um the next year in 1985 so i'd love to visit that house wherever that is i'd have to look into the locations great performances in this film all round. you know stephen burkoff as um victor maitland is kind of menacing as well you believe him something i forgot to mention also is that jonathan banks of breaking bad fame is in this as well as you know and when i first saw him in breaking bad i was like i know that guy and then i kind of pieced it together but because i hadn't seen him since this so, you know, he's the man gets thrown in the buffer at the horror club. And um, he's also in, um, he's a good guy. He's an ally of Nick Nolte in 48 Hours. So very much a cool kind of customer, Jonathan Banks, because I've only ever seen him in action. Right, The Golden Child is the next film. I've never really seen it, I've got to be honest. I think I have seen it and I just feel like I haven't because it's not a comedy, it's just an 80s kind of wonder film. But I'm going to hand you over to um, my trusted partner in crime, Emily Moman, to tell you about The Golden Child. So Emily, with Beverly Hills Cop 2 on in the background, I've given you the honour whilst you shop for umbrellas of talking about the golden child because you've seen it and I haven't what's it for you? is it any good? any things of note to say about it? I don't remember what year did it come out? 85 okay I probably watched it in like 86 so you're 5 years old <laughs> I do like the most blatant thing I remember about it is actually like renting it from the videos, like one of my parents renting it from the video store and just the cover. I remember that it's kind of there being like a big epic, like opening scene, I think. I don't remember. This is the first scene um, filmed in the Playboy Mansion, did you know that? Before all the housewife shows and all that. Is that right? So, just by chance, Beverly Hills Cop is on every night, isn't it? One or two. Seemingly, yeah. 
And while we're here, what's your favourite Eddie Murphy film? What's the least favourite? And you're not particularly a fan, are you? Well, no, that's not true. What, a fan of Eddie Murphy? Well, yeah, you've left this on while I've gone in the other room, haven't you? Yeah. So, yeah, favourite film, favourite quote, and uh, least favourite film. And what would you say to him if you were oh, stuck on a roller coaster like with him? Clumps and stuff. Like the 90s stuff. Yeah, I like Beverly Hills Cup one. Yeah. And, um... Chief Lutz. Johnny Wishbone. Do you prefer the casting too? No. I like Jenny and... Um, you like Paul Reiser in this and stuff? Paul Reiser's only in it. He's in one as well, Paul Reiser. In one, he's like, this is not my locker. And in two, he goes, this, this is, is not, not my office. office. <laughs> you fire taggart. So, yeah, what's your least favourite? It's the clumps, right? Um, Nutty Professor 2. And what's your favourite Beverly Hills Cop? And what's your favourite line by him ever or your favourite joke or whatever? Well, it's hard because I think now I like the lines that you like because you repeat them all the time. You like banana in a tailpipe. <laughs> Look, man, like a buffalo man in a tailpipe. What I've learned already from this podcast, I'm only halfway through, is that I'm... What's it sound like this? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to fall for banana in a tailpipe? <laughs> yeah. I what, laugh out loud that last what I've learned though is that I'm better at podcasts with other people. Right. Maybe I'm better with other people. On my own, it's quite serious. Yeah, but that's you just haven't you have nothing to bounce it off of. You don't know if it's. But you're funny. You don't need somebody else around you to be funny. Well, not with myself. Well, you'll hear it, and you'll hear now. Oh, are you terrible on your own? Uh, no, I'm all right. Well, judge for yourselves, viewers, the listeners. Are you covering Tower Heist in this? No, I'm, it's mainly the 80s. I'm going to like abbreviate the 90s films and his highlights, I think, from the last 15 years. This entire scene was improvised with Sidney Bernstein. What's his name in real life? Um, Gilbert Godfrey. That's my wife's car! Anyway... So well done. That's uh, the Golden Child section and, and Emily's view.
and we're talking Beverly Hills Cop 2. An amazing opening. They knew what they were doing with this. I mean, this is a good sequel. It very much has its own kind of vibe this film I feel like it's like cinematically it's very different to the first one the first one feels like a film you know it's very innocent and it's very lunchtime almost it seems to be taking place but this one is very much at dusk and there's a lot of kind of orangey kind of cinematography here in this one and kind of a more menacing kind of adult film where they knew what they were getting with Murphy and they knew that they had to kind of they were going to they were going to get his improvisations and then with the plot they I suppose they tried to make it more complicated and it's based around Ronnie Cox Bogomil from the first one he gets shot and wounded and then he's avenging that um, kind of not a murder but is near death because we can't kill off all the good guys can we um, so this one is kind of the first sequel and came pretty quickly slightly different kind of um, people behind it to the first one that's why I think it has the slightly different vibe about it but when I was looking through clips to sort of talk about these films I found more from two than I did from one I don't know if that's a consequence you know the kind of situations that are in one are kind of feel like they're part of the plot so when he gets thrown out of the windows because he's getting thrown out of Victor Maitland's office whereas in this one it's very welcome all of the kind of scenarios but the thing where he goes into try to get into the the gun club that he's got vitamins he pretends that they're explosives that he's delivering so you can tell that maybe the script with this one sort of creates more ridiculous things that Murphy can go off on great soundtrack with you know the heat is on and shakedown and stuff like that this one was a box office success whereas not necessarily a critical success because I think like loads of other sequels around the time and like Home Alone and stuff comes to mind it's kind of an exact copy of the first one it's returning for the cash in but you know as a piece of art or whatever it's brilliant it's still great there's some cameos in here you know they go in a strip club again they've got big George Michael songs they've got Hugh Hefner coming in they're in the Playboy Mansion uh, you've got the first appearance on screen by Chris Rock a big sort of fun soundtrack with Jermaine Jackson and the Pointer Sisters and stuff like that. So, you know, here's another one of those big scenes that we all know and love from Beverly Hills Cop 2. Hey man, take off your glasses. I 
right, I thought that was you, man. So we're in 1987 now. The world's slightly different. 1987, kind of, back then, I don't feel like the years were kind of blending into each other as much. I think there's a distinct vibe about 1987 compared to 1984. And so, you know, that's another reason why this feels slightly different. One of the first times as well we see cross-referencing. There's so many big hits at the time. There's posters in the apartment of uh, Billy Rosewood of Rambo and they're referencing Stallone. Bridget Nielsen's also in this, so it's probably a bit of an in-joke when she was tall and kind of menacing. I never found her too hot and now she kind of looks like a gremlin. But, you know, this was probably the height of Bridget Nielsen as well. And again, there's a Stallone connection because Bridget Nielsen was in um, a film with Stallone. I think it was Cobra at the time. So this film had the biggest opening weekend in 1987. The gun club owner being called Richard James is a nod to Rick James, which is Eddie Murphy's musician friend you heard was the producer and backing vocalist on Party All The Time, which he had at the beginning of this episode. Tony Scott and Bridget Nielsen had an affair during filming, so she was up for it in 1987. In the making of, Tony Scott refers this sequel as like a cross between Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 48 Hours, where, where you can't really go too far wrong with that, can you? Also, I think that Judge Reinhold in this one is even better. He's, he's well into his role in this one. And I love, it. Is particularly in the third act, I think he's really funny with all his arsenals of guns and stuff. Police! You're under arrest! I think they know that, Billy. Drop your weapons! Put your hands on your heads! Got your hands up, Billy. What took you guys so long? <laughs> and the team are truly great and I think what's lacking from the third one among many things is this kind of team of Judge Reinhold John Ashton and Murphy which is on fire here so that's Beverly Hills Cop 2 let's have one more taste of it hey I got beer watch out this deck is very slippery it's beer and refrigerator and if you like you go behind the bar make yourself martinis wait a second y'all on duty no martinis for you Perrier water is what you want right guy got some swimming trunks in the bedroom dive in the pool come on in the pool party time what are you doing in a place like this what are you talking about place like what place like this swimming pool jacuzzi what are you talking about i'm spoiling myself right oh you mean the construction is going on yes i'm very embarrassed about that what i'm trying to do though is just confine myself to the other five bedrooms i'm used to compromising my lifestyle bullshit you've stolen this house how the fuck can you steal a house my uncle's house is he in rock and roll no well look at the big titties Yo, man, look at this. Titties, orange juice, beer. Will you go put your trunks on and get in this pool? All right, now we're going to segue into the next section, which is Raw. And in Raw, Murphy refers to this particular song by Janet Jackson. Enjoy. What's up, girl? He stood me up again. Again? Mm-hmm. Well, what's up with this guy? Do you really like him that much? Yes, honey, I love him. He is fine. He does a lot of nice things for me. I know he used to do nice stuff for you, but what has he done for you lately?
Alright, so Eddie is um, referring to that song What Have You Done For Me Lately by Janet Jackson when he's in Raw. So Raw is also in 1987. He's like one of the biggest stars in the world at this point. And this was a big, you know, comedy film. It was shot in the Felt Forum in Manhattan, which I don't think is there anymore. It's, it's in the Madison Square Garden complex. Feels like very, you know, very much epitomizes 80s kind of New York. And Murphy's from Brooklyn and it's kind of a homecoming thing. And I'd love it if he did do stand up again, that if he did it in New York, you know, I think he would fill out Madison Square Garden for about a month if he came back. Um, and so Raw is kind of, he's a big star now. He's in the kind of thriller, kind of referencing leather outfit. He's talking about, you know, STDs. He's talking about Bill Cosby. He's talking about Michael Jackson. He's talking about McDonald's and, you know, all of the sort of pop culture things of the time. So if you kind of need a pop culture hit of the 80s Raw is a really good shout you know I used to watch it quite a lot when I was at uni and I was kind of I don't know 21 20 coming in from the pub you know it never fails every time it'll you know it's worth watching I think it's probably for me was my favorite stand-up performance of all time be careful you gotta have a J-O-B in the 80s you gotta have some money you gotta have some money you can't get no pussy listen to the radio that's what it's about Listen to Madonna, I'm a material girl in a material world. You ain't got no money, you can't have no pussy. <laughs> Basically what it is, there's a song out now called Got to Have a J-O-B if you want to be with me. And the lyrics go, ain't nothing going on but the rent. Like if you went up and said, hey babe, what's going on? The rent, motherfucker. <laughs> Do you have a job? Well, I, 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 I want to get the fuck out of my face. Got to have some money. It says no romance without finance. And women love them songs. They be going, got to have a J-O-D. <laughs> Janet Jackson got a hit record, What Have You Done For Me Lately? That's what they be thinking. What have you done for me lately? The record start off like that. I know he used to do shit for you, but what has he done for you lately? <laughs> Baby, I love you. What have you done for me lately? You know, you can be all the things you've always wanted to be. Beautiful, sexy, easy as one, two, three. Just let your soul go. Just let it shine through. Just let your McDonald's people, we got this little misunderstanding. Hmm? See, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's. Huh? 
They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. <laughs> now, see, they got the Big Mac. I got the Big Mick. We both got two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions. But they use a sesame seed bun. My buns have no seeds. Welcome back. Well, it's been actually a couple of months um, since I did my last segment of the Eddie Murphy podcast. I found it quite hard to do stuff on my own, but now I'm going to finish it. It's legendary. So now it's the 1st of May, the birds are singing and it's spring, and I'm going to finish my Eddie Murphy podcast, right? So that was the advert for or the commercial for McDowell's, which was um, the McDonald's sort of opponent, the rival in the film. Coming to America is something that it kind of has its own world, and it definitely, you know, it spawned a TV series, and some would say it's the best Eddie Murphy film. It's the first film where he played loads of different characters. Um, it reunites him with John Landis, who he, you know, worked with on Trading Places. And interestingly enough, I think John Landis said that that when Eddie came onto the set for this film, he was a completely different guy because he's had so much success. He's one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, interesting film, interesting concept, um, you know, quite high concept. And so much so that I think the idea was actually a ripoff. Um, there was a court case um, with Paramount and a comedian called Art Buckwald who filed in 1990 against the film produced on the grounds that the film idea was stolen from a script that he'd done about a rich, despotic African guy who comes to America for a state visit. Anyway, this film is hilarious from the get-go. It doesn't matter who wrote it, but this is brilliant. It's always enjoyable. It's always on TV. And they're talking about a sequel, funnily enough. So in the sort of two-month window I've had where I was about to talk about this film, there's apparently a sequel. And it's quite a funny story in that Eddie Murphy, it was tweeted from his account um, that there was going to be a, a Coming to America 2. And then when he was asked about it, Eddie Murphy himself, he knew nothing about it. His daughter actually said to him, you know, you, you've, you've tweeted out that there's going to be a Coming to America 2. And he went, I have a Twitter. I didn't even know I had a Twitter. So I quite rate that, I quite rate that about Eddie Murphy, that he's kind of in his own world. And, you know, he's got a couple of 22-year-old daughters now who are all about the internet and stuff like that. And um, obviously his management or something have been talking about it. And there's not a lot of information about this film out there because it's literally in the last couple of weeks come out that there's going to be a sequel. Who knows? I mean, can it work? The world's changed a lot since 1988. Good morning, my neighbours! Hey, fuck you! Yes! Yes! Fuck you too! What I loved about this film is obviously the kind of cultural comedy which I always love with um, Sasha Baron Cohen and stuff like that you know you could be pushing towards almost prejudice or racism but it's all kind of good natured I would think but the mixture of the African guy the rich guy coming to Queens New York actually where I used to live and the McDowell's um, 
where they have that famous scene where Sam Jackson comes in it's like anybody move I'll blow your fucking head off I've actually been in that that is actually a McDonald's which I think might be a kind of a joke by the makers or something I don't know if it was a McDonald's back in the 80s but it is exactly how it feels it's kind of run down it's Queens Plaza so it's actually quite near the uh, Queensborough Bridge in New York so you're only like a 15 minute walk or like a 5 minute subway ride from kind of 57th Street Times Square but Queens is pretty rough I mean it's getting hipster now but that exact area what you see in the film I would say is exactly what it was like in 1988 you know when they pull up in the limo and there's people doing bonfires out of bins and like the guy who um, they robbed them and then there's the guy later in the film trying to s- opens up his jacket hey you want to buy some toothbrushes man he's got all the gold hair fires and all that stuff and it kind of is what Queens is like to be honest so I thought that was really great but my favourite thing and I think what could have been a spin off from this film was the guys in the barbershop where Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are playing every character um, even the white guy the white Jewish guy and there's one guy that isn't um one of those two I think it's a small guy you ain't never met no Frank Sinatra that guy so um, let's hear a clip from that you must be out of your goddamn mind Joe Lewis the greatest boxer ever lived I'll be with you boys in a minute he was bad in Captain Clay he bad in Sugar Ray he bad in that who that you, the new boy Mike, Mike, Mike Tyson look like a bulldog he bad in him too he whipped Mike Tyson there he whipped all their asses what about Rocky Marciano oh there they go there they go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass. That's the one. That's the one. Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. Let me tell you something wonderful. Rocky Marciano was good. But compared to Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano ain't shit. He bit Joe Lewis's ass. That's right. He did whoop Joe Lewis's ass. Joe Lewis was 75 years old when he fought. I don't know how old he was, but he got his ass whooped. Joe Lewis had come out of retirement to fight Rocky Marciano. The man was 76 years old. Joe Lewis always lied about his age. He lied about his age all the time. One time, Frank Sinatra comes out here and sat down in this chair. And I said, Frank, you hang out with Joe Lewis. Just between me and you, how old is Joe Lewis? You know what Frank told me? He said, hey, Joe Lewis, 137 years old. 137 years old. Oh, man, you ain't never meet no Frank Sinatra. Fuck you. Fuck you and fuck you. Who's next? Now, another legendary, legendary um, set piece uh, takes place in the kind of community hall, the church sort of place where they are pushing McDowell's, trying to get them to eat those burgers with no seeds. Um, <laughs> um, Mr. Randy Watson comes, uh, you know, another guy that could have his own film. It feels like kind of what um, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson were trying to do about 20 years later, where you have such legendary characters in kind of films that are a bit okay I mean this is a great film but the strength of these supporting characters are just amazing and so we got Arsenio Hall as the Reverend Brown introducing Mr. Randy Watson and Sexual Chocolate which is legendary on itself I expect the YouTube um, comments alone will tell you a story about this so let's hear a clip of that bit Mr. Randy Watson I want you to put your hands together and welcome him to the stage big round of applause for Jackson Heights' own Mr. Randy Watson. Yes, Randy Watson. <laughs> that boy is good. Mm-hmm. Good and terrible. And Reverend Brown. Three years for the Reverend. This man's been my Reverend since I was a little boy, and I love him dearly. He's a very special man. Reverend Brown. 
It feels so lovely to be here tonight. What a beautiful art. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're so lovely. Everyone's so lovely. And um, while you're in the clapping mood, I'd like you to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. Sexual Chocolate. They play so fine, don't you agree? I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride. Make it easier. Some of the good stuff, right? Coming up. Want a Coke? Join the show? <laughs> Enjoy, young man. There it is, and the first clip there on the first come on YouTube is one of the funniest movie scenes of all time, and I actually agree. Um, some other little tidbits about this film then. So um, Cuba Gooding Jr. is the kid who's getting his hair cut in the barbershop. The film made $289 million at the box office on a budget of 39, so no wonder they want to make a se uh, sequel. Sidney Poitier was originally considered for the role of King Jaffe Joffa. I think he'd have done very well as well. Vanessa Williams was going to play Lisa McDowell, and I don't know what happened to that girl who played Lisa McDowell. Does anybody know? I haven't seen her since. Eddie Murphy on the film his demands included a $1,500 a week personal trainer, round-the-clock chauffeur service, a valet, $1,000 a week for his brother to appear as a stand-in, RIP Charlie Murphy. So yeah, Eddie Murphy at this point, I suppose, is a bit of an asshole. He's still only about 27 and living it up. Um, he's believing his own press, but it is good. What can you say? It's like one of those boxers, you know, who, like Muhammad Ali or like... Um, Floyd Mayweather, they are kind of, they are that good, so let them talk the talk. In 1938, the Knights belonged to Harlem. The place to be was Club Sugar Ray's. The man to know was Quick. Now when you see Quick, I suggest you guys make plans to go elsewhere. You, I ain't afraid of going up against Smalls or Calhoun. That's because you're young. <laughs> Come on! Next, Harlem Nights. Now, I suppose this is a bit of a vanity project where uh, Murphy got to collaborate with his hero, Richard Pryor. Now, here is the main thing. I'm not going to pretend about this. I have not seen this. The rumours around at the time was that it was a terrible, terrible film. Um, but it did make money. It made 95 million at the box office on a budget of 30 million. And the fact that a train's coming past when I'm talking about it means that I'm just not supposed to be talking about it because I haven't seen it. But it's about early um, 
20th century Harlem, New York, and I expect some gangsters characters. It's a comedy crime film, so I don't know. I expect this era was visited better and covered better in life. Uh, about 10 years later from Harlem Nights which I have not seen and therefore maybe this isn't a proper podcast now I think we can all agree that we're in a bit of a slide with Eddie Murphy's career here I think he was getting a bit ahead himself and he's got one I mean it's probably his true first raspberry or what do you call it a turkey a turkey at the box office or even though you know it made money it was a critical flop Harlem Nights and next we have another 48 hours so this is the second season Equal of his career. This is where we lived until we split up. She moved up to Mill Valley. I've been trying to sell it. Twelve grand a year's went for the down payment. Man, how could you leave my car outside all these years? Why'd you put it in the fucking garage? Look at that dirt all over it. What if somebody stole it? Yeah, I had an alarm put on it. Yeah. You just push this blue button right there. You have no appreciation whatsoever for what's happening. That's what it is. You don't know that that car is flying. You know how much pussy I got because of that car? a lot more violent than the first one Nick Nolte's just about the same a bit cleared up he's got smarter hair he drives the same car it's another one of these things where they're trying to revisit quite a high concept film where in real life these things don't happen again really do they these one-off experiences can you think of an experience in your life that was pretty unique that happened twice you know so once again I think uh, Reggie Hammond's character has spent another five years in prison even though he's sort of he's um, helped reprimand a criminal and help the police force in the first one he comes out of prison this time he's got loads of money um, stored up in a locker somewhere which gets blown up and he ends up having to go again with Jack Cates to take on Gans's brother um, and there's a mystery ice man involved in this who turns out to be a guy from the first film so it's got a, myster a mystery element in um, 40 hours too it's a lot more violent than the first one and I suppose 1990 is a quite a different time from 1982 bad guys are a couple of bikers there's no real role for any women there's a funny scene again almost most like a homage to the first film where Eddie's character Reggie Hammond is holding up a bar firing the guns Because you got a gun? 
No, because I have a gun and I'll pop a cap in your ass. I don't think you've got the guts to use it. Anybody else want to live? Sorry about the kneecap. I got a little um, excited. We belong together. And you know that I'm right. Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? Said we'd be forever. Said it never die. As you can hear, we are now firmly in the 90s firmly in the 90s a bit of boys to men end of the road one of the classic songs and on the soundtrack to boomerang which is a pretty underrated eddie murphy film i would say um i just whacked on the opening credits and i quite enjoyed that um so it has a different feel and i think it's a pretty original film for eddie's filmography here it's the first time he's fully kind of in rom-com i think this character marcus graham is a bit more like how he really was maybe at that time i mean i don't know him but it's kind of something to think that but womanizer you know who can't be pinned down he's going out with all the hot women in town as he walks into work everyone's you know so happy to see him much like when i walk into work um <laughs> and uh, it's an all-black cast and it's got some you know people that were the biggest stars of the 90s martin lawrence halle berry chris rock they're all in this film in their early 20s. It's shot in New York City. Um, it did really well. It's the 18th highest grossing movie of that year, but it's not an action film. It's purely a rom-com. It's kind of the guys chatting about women, you know, as they're on the treadmill and stuff like that. Robin Givens is in it as well, which I think she was Mike Tyson's wife at this time. Lots of sex scenes, is a funny film. Um, it's Eddie Murphy doing his trickster stuff, you know, like he does. Uh, to get into a hotel or live in the millionaire's house or something, but he's doing it to kind of pull or how do you say it, pick up women in the US. So I really enjoy Boomerang and I think it's quite a cool film. Grace Jones is in it, it's really enjoyable, all for it. Oh yeah, we've got some real interesting people on the soundtrack. Again, you know, these are the people that of the 90s, you know, we've got Babyface, um, Tony Braxton. Boys to Men obviously are on it, um, and that song, End of the Road, it broke Elvis Presley record of 11 weeks at number one over Hound Dog. And although, you know, I enjoy it, I don't think the critics did, it's got a 38% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, but in the kind of, you know, urban black world, it's kind of really rated. BET's top 25 movies in the last 25 years, it's at number 21. I know, but you know, so there's a lot of black movies that come out, and I think this kind of led the way for a lot of films with all black casts that have come out since. So I suppose Eddie Murphy, in kind of a cult way, or in a, you know, he's not really taken seriously, but he's done a lot of groundbreaking things, I suppose, you know. Halle Berry was the only actress to audition for the part. She was immediately cast after the screen test. She's still mind blowingly hot. 25 years later. I once saw Halle Berry in person actually in Emily's restaurant. She's very small and I was like, 
I don't know, that's all I can say. She was very small and it's almost like surreal to see someone that famous. First Eddie Murphy movie that didn't open at number one at the box office since Best Defense, which as we know is terrible. But you know, this is a bit more of a side project. Me as a Springsteen fan, I see this as Eddie Murphy's tunnel of love. Straight after Born in the USA, straight after the big commercial hit. There's a, you know, I think it's wise to not try and replicate that. All right, so three cheers for Boomerang. Kirby! Come on, Kirby! Kirby! Did you lose your dog? Oh, yeah, I lost a uh, white Springer Spin with brown spots on him, Kirby. Real energetic, happy dog. Did you see him? Oh, I haven't seen him. Man, I only took him off the leash for a couple of seconds. I can't believe this happened. Kirby! Oh. He's like a family member, you know? Oh, I know. I feel the same way about Brutus. I love my Brutus. I can see why. Do you walk in here every day? Yeah, I do. Could you do me a favor? My name is Marcus Graham. Here's my card. If you bump into Kirby, could you, like, call us and I have somebody come pick him up? Okay. Well, good luck. I sure hope you find him. Thanks. Kirby! Kirby! Wait, let me give you my number, because I'm not going to be able to sleep until I know you found him. Do you have a pen? Do I? I have a pen right here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good luck. Bye-bye. Kirby? Curb? Curbster? All right, guys, we are officially in the shallow water of Eddie Murphy in the early to mid-90s, and now we have a distinguished, or the distinguished gentleman. Now, I saw this when it came out, um, it's again in 92, so any good work he'd done with Boomerang was kind of dismantled with this. I don't remember much about it, but I think I want to watch it again because it seems to be like the con man character from Trading Places, Elements of Beverly Hills Cop, the kind of attitude of the Eddie Murphy's world of his characters. So this time we've got a con man who ends up in politics because um, someone he's working for has a heart attack. Um, whilst having sex with his secretary. This was the first genuine bomb um, of Murphy's career, really, where he's leading it, you know, since the big ones, he's, you know, kind of in the uh, driver's seat and he's an A-list star. He's not a producer, he's not a director of this, um, but he only made $46 million on a $50 million budget, so I suppose his clout in Hollywood went a bit downtown after this one. Let's have a clip from Distinguished Gentleman and move on in what is called a sterile, joyless comedy. Chairman Dodge, please. Will you tell him that it's Mr. Joshua Benjamin from the NAACP on the line? No, ma'am, actually you'll be of a great deal of help. I have a few minor questions. I would like to know how many members of the Chairman's Committee are African Americans. None. Well, I'm sure you have a, a Latino member on the committee. No Latinos either. Uh, does uh, the chairman have any Asians or any Native Americans on the committee? No Asians and no Natives. Does the chairman have any handicaps or gays on the committee? No gays. Well, you've been of a great deal of help. Um, just forget I even called. Uh, just tell him I said hi. And now here we are at Beverly Hills Cop 3 where Eddie reunites with John Landis for a final time, as it stands, um, the latest kind of Axel Foley appearance in society and culture. Well, not society. Um, so 1994, this is a very different time from 1984, and the film feels really different. The film doesn't seem to have a clue who it is. 
I always want to watch Eddie Murphy playing Axel Foley. So, you know, it was on TV a while ago, but something about it just doesn't work. It feels a bit like a TV movie. Obviously, he got paid a lot of money to do this. So I, I don't know what was going on with Eddie Murphy at this time. He's probably about 32 or something now. And uh, a second sequel. I mean, the second one had such a rich kind of um, cinematography about it and such an identity. And this one is very separate from the first two. It's a bit lighter. They're doing a dance in the kind of uh, mechanics at the beginning. Inspector Todd gets killed and again we're just avenging a friend's death, which this time is Inspector Todd. Um, you know, obviously the producers thought it would appeal to a younger audience to have the whole film take place in a fun fair or whatever you call it in America, in a kind of um, amusement park. It really doesn't work and it's unfortunate that, you know, we don't have John Ashton in this one as Taggart. We have, we have Judge Reinhold, but, you know, and he's doing his best. I suppose he's exactly the same as he is in the other films, but the script is just not there. I suppose Eddie Murphy's improvising is good, but it's not what it was. I suppose it's the first time we start to think, where is the old Eddie Murphy? He's starting to make less effort. I suppose he doesn't feel like he has much to prove here. I don't know. Um, it's still enjoyable, it's still Eddie Murphy, you still get the facial reactions and stuff. The theme is updated, which is always a horrible thing to do. You know, the classic theme should have come back of Axel F. I suppose if they did it, there was a much talked about um, fourth Beverly Hills Cop film, which got scrapped. And they did a pilot of something in America with, um, you know, someone else in the lead and Eddie Murphy in a supporting role. So worth checking out, I suppose. But it's not a great film. Let's have a clip from Beverly Hills Cop 3. Guess what though, it made money. Budget of 50 million made 119.2. In 2005, Landis actually looked back on it and said that Murphy worked against the comedy of Beverly Hills Cop 3. Uh, and it was a very strange experience. So I suppose unlike the first film, where Murphy was enhancing what was essentially just an action film and making it a comedy, this one's written as a comedy and he kind of made it an action film. So it is all very bizarre. 10% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, runs out of steam before the end. Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop 3 is, is nominated for three Golden Raspberry Awards. Landis for Worst Director, Worst Remake or Sequel. It's a shame for Landis as well, because his first films with uh, Murphy were so great. And, you know, there's been loads of talk about fourth Beverly Hills Cop film, as I say, but it's now officially, in May 2017, being pulled. Now, a lot of people are going to lose interest now, as I did in Eddie Murphy himself. We're in 1995, we're in Vampire in Brooklyn, I haven't seen that one either. But now we're going to um, segue over to me and Emily talking at an entirely another time about The Nutty Professor. If uh, Eddie Murphy and Robert Nero were in a film, what would... What they would... were. They were? Showtime. Came um, out in 2007. Maybe uh, I watched that again. You remember that? No. Oh. Uh, well, not really. What was it about? I watched it in the cinema in New York. What was it about? A cop reality show. Oh, yeah. It's not too bad. We saw that together, actually. 
No, I saw it in the cinema. No, I mean, we saw it East together. East Village. On, um, I would watch it TV. again. <clears throat> and William Shatner's in it. Oh, yeah, what's he play? I don't remember, really. Some dick. The director of the film, of the, the reality show. You know, it's difficult because can Eddie Murphy be in an action film and not a comedy? No. And De Niro in comedy films is going to be comedy De Niro. Maybe the right mix would be like a David O. Russell film where it's got comedy elements, but it's a proper film. So the way De Niro acts in his films is quite good. It's like the modern De Niro. And then Eddie Murphy would have to be like his sort of dream girl self, where he's playing a character and not being Eddie Murphy. Right. So it'd have to almost be one of his fat characters or something, just pick a character and... Well, no, but you know. Do you like those movies? Nah. Well, Coming to America is the first one. And Coming to America created that because it was so successful. The clumps. I... The Nutty Professor's all right. But he lives. And then The Clumps is the second one, right? Well, yeah, but also, family. The Nutty Professor is a, a remake? It's a remake. It's a remake. No. I don't know if you can really take credit for that. Yeah, I mean, De Niro and Eddie Murphy have both spent 40s, but it just so happens they're my favourites, aren't they? Are they your favourites? Are they your favourites? Yeah, and Stallone. Let's, yeah? Let's be honest. Right, now I'm going to be more choosy at this point because I think the last good Eddie Murphy year was 1999. And I'm gonna talk about a couple of his films now. The first one is called Life. And I don't know if you've seen it, it's kind of um, a comedy version of The Shawshank Redemption, uh, co-star with Martin Lawrence. It's the second film that they'd worked on after Boomerang. It was the last R-rated role to date for Eddie Murphy, who mainly has stuck to family-friendly films since. Which maybe work if you are under the age of seven. We are all looking for that wise-cracking Eddie Murphy. And the last we kind of saw from him is here in life. We're going to touch people, because I'm going to sing from the soul, nigga. <laughs> now, this is a really enjoyable film, also a bit sad. Um, so, obviously, my favourite bit is when they're in the pie shop at the beginning, uh, just before they get um, arrested, or I can't remember if they're even on the run at that point. I think it's a cool film. It goes through a lot of time. There's a lot of funny stuff. get all asked it's, it's, it's a fact we know that but look, look, look did i get a nomination no and you know why because i because i ain't playing none of them slave roles i get my ass whipped that's when you get the nomination Kip, that's what that dude play a slave role get his ass whipped he get a nomination the white boy play an idiot they get the Oscar. Oh, maybe on, i should play get me find me a script as a retarded slave then i get the Oscar. oh i'm gonna schmooze i'll be right back yeah go find that script fuck the wonder slave okay. 
All right, we'll be talking Bowfinger, baby. Bowfinger is a bit of a cult film, especially, I don't know, in my life, in my world. It's directed by Frank Oz, who some of you may know is the voice of Yoda. He was also the cop in Trading Places, who uh, sort of says, one cellophane bag. The guy, the bald guy, the tash, I don't know if you remember that. Um, so it's a weird film. It's obviously mainly starring Steve Martin as a guy who tries to get Eddie Murphy's character to sort of illegally star in a film. So it's around the time now when reality TV is starting to take over in society. MTV no longer shows, you know, music. Um, it's got a great cast. Heather Graham is hot as hell in this, as she was in the late 90s. Um, Murphy also plays the brother of the... So he plays two roles in this again. He plays the hot action star Kit Ramsey, who's got a lot of issues. And then he plays his brother. And also, we got some great supporting role... Uh, supporting stints by Terence Stamp, one of my favourite actors. And this is a really funny film. And the film where... The, the scene where Eddie is playing Jif Ramsey, Kit Ramsey's brother, who's a bit special, when he runs across the freeway, that, there's something weirdly funny about the first time you see that. I just couldn't even breathe. It was so funny. But let's have an audio of when they're trying to make Jif Ramsey an actor in the place of his brother. You're not sure if you love him, but you want to save the planet and action. Kit, I don't know what's right anymore. All I know is I have feelings that make me need you. Need you now. Awesome. You're doing great. You're going to be a star. And cut. Now this is not really regarded as a hit, but I suppose I'm gonna stick my neck out of it here and say this is my favorite Eddie Murphy film of the 90s. And I think the last really, really consistently funny performance he did, he's playing two characters here, two different types of comedy. Um, Ramsey, you know, do the thing, where they put the mask on and like, that's really great Eddie Murphy stuff there. So I think he'd really return to something great here. And it's good that he's in a supporting role. I think he, he's done that more often recently with like, with Tower Heist and Shrek and Dreamgirls and stuff like that and I think that's kind of the thing we're looking at here when Eddie's a leading man in the last 20 years it hasn't worked out so well for him but this is a really funny film I really recommend it this and Boomerang I'd really recommend as his films of the 90s and since then there's been a lot of sporadic really good performances but I think people are longing for the return of Eddie Murphy culturally and you know when you see him on a talk show people say like he's kind of something weird's going on like he's had his mojo kind of removed but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna play you this clip now of him doing stand-up uh, this year or a stand-up segment about Bill Cosby and award ceremony or have you know that he hasn't lost it at all he's just teasing us and hopefully he will return to stand-up sometime soon wonderful thing to be included with some of my my heroes Richard Pryor and George Carlin and who else got this? Bill, oh, Bill, Bill has one of these. <laughs> Did y'all make Bill give his back? No, because I know there was a big outcry from people. They was trying to get Bill to give his trophies back. You know you f***ed up when they want you to give your trophies back. Trophy back too? He should do one show where he just come out and just talk crazy now. I would like to talk to 
the people who feel <laughs> that I should give back my Toby's. <laughs> Recently, that I allegedly put the pill in the people's chocolate. <laughs> I wish somebody would come up to my house talking about give up the trophy because you put the pill in the people's chocolate. You get no. Because I'm not giving back. <laughs> and, and who? First of all, Hannibal is a caveman's name. And you gonna just come on out and pull, push over the apple cart that Hannibal, if I ever see or meet this Hannibal Barrison person, I am going to try to kill this nigger. Just one show like this, just do one like that. But like I said, I don't want to go too far on Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make this about him. Now, I can't um, let this go, kids, without talking about the adventures of Pluto Nash. Now, this is, according to IMDb, the biggest movie flop of all time. Let's talk about Pluto Nash. I think I attempted to watch it and I switched off after about 20 minutes. Now that I'm married, I can't really hang with these films for that long. It came out in 2002. So I don't really know what went wrong here. Its budget was $100 million and it made $4 million. This has got to be a serious dent on somebody's bank account. The largest financial loss of any movie to date. It was shelved for almost two years before it was released, so people knew that they were sitting on a serious shit here. Alec Baldwin disliked the film so much that he insisted on being uncredited. He's a bit of a temperamental little thing, isn't he, Alec Baldwin? Jennifer Lopez and Halle Berry both passed on a part in this, so she hasn't returned the favour there, Halle Berry. Why is it so bad? Who knows? Now, sometimes when I see a um, documentary or I hear a kind of documenting a legendary person's life and they go through all the stuff they did. So, for example, when maybe Van Morrison and I'll only go up to the year 1980 or Stevie Wonder and they'll only go up to Songs in the Key of Life. Now, I don't think that's the case of Eddie Murphy and it might, it feels a bit like this is fizzling out and I don't want to talk about Tower Heist or Shrek or I Spy or any of that. But it's not the stuff that's put him on the map. So I feel like I'd be phoning it in. So I'm not going to talk about those, but I'm going to talk about the future of Eddie Murphy and I wonder what he's actually doing. He did a film called A Thousand Words, which was weird, and I don't know if it did very well because it was once again a high concept film about how he went up to a tree or something and the tree meant that he couldn't talk anymore and it was a bit of a gimmick and something that could have just been one sketch on Saturday Night Live. He made that about four years before it came out as well, so he really hasn't made a film apart from this film called Mr. Church. And there's rumours that he's going to star in this film Triplets with... Um, 
Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito as a sequel to Twins. Don't know how that's going to work. How does the central joke work that he is Danny DeVito's brother? I mean, they could pull it off with Twins, but I don't know how that's going to work with the race thing. He can't genetically be... I suppose they can always make it work in Hollywood, right? Also, talk of him returning, obviously, to coming to America and Beverly Hills Cop, but he's not doing a lot, seemingly apart from going to Starbucks with his kind of hot supermodel girlfriend from, like, Sweden or whatever. So cheers to you, Eddie. This has been an interesting episode. I'm going to be an honest man from now on, right? Good. But if I did decide to be a thief, what makes you think you can catch me? Can I have my lighter back, Reggie? <laughs> We're getting ready to rock and roll. We're going to one, two, three, four.